Just this past week, some good friends of ours had a situation with their house that fell through at the last minute. They were going to close on Friday and they were um, prepared to take the money from the deposit from the closing and use it to pay the movers to move across multiple states and to put a lease deposit down on a new place. And um, right at the last minute, the person that they were interacting with through attorneys basically said, no, I'm not going to do it. And not only said that, but obviously when you do that normally in a housing deal, you lose your deposit, but said, I'm actually going to keep my deposit too. And brought the kind of pit bull attorney out and started threatening litigation for our friends. And as we talked with our friends, they, you know, they asked, I think, rightly and honestly the question, so where is God in the midst of this? We've done everything right. We've walked uprightly. We've walked with integrity. And yet somehow in the end, we're stuck out in the cold. Where is he? Does he see? Uh, I was talking a, n- a number of years ago with a woman who did uh, work, who does work in Egypt. Her name is Mama Maggie, and she's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, and she has about 65 different ministry centers in Egypt that minister to the poorest of the poor. And she was describing her experience in a predominantly Muslim culture about the difficulty that it was for her ministry to get spaces in Egypt, just physical buildings, because all that the governing authorities had to do was just make one little mistake and it would render their their contract invalid and they were literally just left out in the cold in doing this great kind of... because they followed this one that we follow here called Jesus. Recently, had a few years ago, we had a woman come through this community who was from Iran who um, met Jesus over here and got to encounter him and and uh, as we talked about what it meant to follow Jesus she looked at me at coffee and said look you know this is going to cost me a lot if I give my life to him and since that time she did she ended up moving to California she was baptized since that time she still hasn't been able to return home because if she were to do so so she sought religious asylum here if she were to do so uh, obviously she could be killed or severely um, just manipulated and hurt in her cultural context back at home. These are all situations that, that raise questions for us, and there are many more like them, some of which we may be uh, dealing with. Some of you may be dealing with situations like this in your life right now. It might be just sim- as simple as there's a person at your office who uh, is clearly dishonest and clearly mean-spirited, and yet they keep getting the promotion while you get looked over. Uh, It may be if you run a business that the rival businesses, your business, who cheat and steal and lie and and everything, they're getting further ahead and getting a bigger share of the profits of your industry while yours seeking to follow uh, the rules and to have integrity seems to be passed over. Or on and on and on. There are all kinds of situations that we encounter in our lives that cause us to question our convictions that Jesus is Lord and that he's reigning over the world that can, can force us to, to really start to, to stumble and ask, God, where are you? And that's the situation that I want us to, to focus in on tonight as we open up to Psalm 94. If you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Psalm 94. We read it earlier. It's 23 verses. It's a bit long to read, but we did the whole thing. The psalmist in Psalm 94 is, is writing out of a situation very similar to any of those that I just went through that some of you obviously have experienced or are experiencing right now in your lives. And the psalmist gives us a great window into how to respond 
to situations of perpetual injustice where God's people seem to be on the wrong end of the deal and where God seems to not be acting as he promises to do so. And so the psalmist helps us as we encounter these kinds of situations in our own lives. And that's the goal tonight. I just want to give you some helpful tips for how we walk through these kinds of moments in life through Psalm 94. The first thing to say about the psalm is just to to say, yeah, the psalmist is in a similar situation. What's going on in the psalmist's world is that the wicked are ruling. They're on top. So verse 20, can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute. They have these kinds of policies that are criminal, uh, that are socially and economically repressive, That if you read in verse 21, it says they banded together against the life of the righteous and condemned the innocent to death. Or back in verses 5 and 6, when he's lamenting, it's they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. The psalmist is saying, look, God, you've said that you're the king over the world and you are a king of justice and you love rightly ordered things, and you want to honor and bless, as you've promised to do so through your steadfast love, the people who remain faithful to your covenant. And yet it's the very people that have rejected you. And I should clarify, the wicked in this passage, and the the righteous, it doesn't mean that the sinless and the sinful. There's not one of us could claim to be on the sinless side of things. It actually means that the wicked are the people who who have literally, in this context, have rejected the terms of the covenant have said, you know, I know God has said, live this way and I'll bless you, live this way and you'll receive curses. I just think that's not really relevant anymore. Because really the way that the world works is the strong get what they need. And so the wicked in this context are those who have simply rejected the covenantal context or the the, the covenantal context of the creator in their lives. They've rejected the terms that they are creatures accountable to a creator. Dependent. Whereas the righteous, not perfect, we know from the Psalms, there's all kinds of Psalms that talk about the sinfulness of God's people. But the righteous in this context, the people that the psalmist is voicing this lament and supplication for, they're the ones who have remained yielded to, to Yahweh, yielded to Israel's God, and stayed in the, through the thick and thin of it to remain faithful to his call on their lives, to pursue justice and mercy and to live a life of integrity and holiness. And they're waiting and so that's the distinction between the two. But the, the, the dissonance for the psalmist, like in all of the situations I just gave you, is the fact that the wrong people are winning. The wrong people are in charge. And God's people seem to be suffering. So instead, though, and this is where it's instructive for us, instead of diminishing the psalmist's faith, we get to watch in Psalm 94 that faith come to life in some very specific ways. And that's what, there are three things that I want to point out about how the psalmist uses this situation that should, that we would say, or some might say, should just cause him to give it up, how he uses that situation to actually exercise the muscles of faith and grow stronger in his commitment to Yahweh and his commitment to God's ways. First thing that he does, verses one through three, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? These aren't sterile prayers. The Psalms are never boring and ordinary and like and, and religious, if you will. The Psalms are gut-wrenching and from the heart. And the first thing that the psalmist does in this situation is he cries out to God. 
from an honest place. It says, look, the wrong people are on top. Your people are on the bottom getting crushed and oppressed. I'm one of those. God, rise up, wake up, get up, get to action here and and act in this situation in accordance with your promises and your purposes. That's what I want you to do. In saying this, you have to see that when we cry out, and I would encourage you in your own life, in situations like this, just to cry out to God. The psalmists often try to rouse God to action through his commitment to them, through his stated character. But, they, but in crying out, you're actually saying, look, everything in my experience right now is causing me to sort of doubt whether what I proclaim about the lordship of, of Jesus is true, because it doesn't feel like he's reigning. But when you cry out in this way, you're reaffirming that you say the world is anchored, the world is bounded by a creator who's committed to me, who loves me, and who's promised to make certain things come to pass, who's promised that there will be a world of shalom, a world of peace, a world where justice rules, a world where the wicked are not free to oppress the poor and the marginalized. He's already promised these things. And since I know that, I'm crying out to him to bring that promise, which we know will come to pass in the future. Bring that Lord into the present situation in which I find myself right now. And when he cries, that, cries out in that way, he's actually reaffirming his commitment to living in that world. It's strengthening our faith simply to cry, which is why I always like to say when you're struggling and you don't know how to pray, just start to talk. Just be honest. And it begins to bolster our faith. As well as not just bolstering his faith in crying out to God in this way. But it also, if you notice, what does he ask God to do? He asks God to have vengeance. He's actually, well I don't know if he is, but Paul in Romans 12 quotes from Deuteronomy 32. Where God is referred to as the Lord of vengeance. He's saying, God, you're the one who's to come and and take revenge or repay, he says in verse 2, the proud for, for their works. You come and set the scales right again because they're clearly off balance. And when he's praying for God to do that, what he means is, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to actually step out of what you've called me to, to be and to do as one who follows you and take up the same kind of actions that they're invoking upon me, that they're using upon my life and fight fire with fire. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my life in your hands again. And I'm going to ask you, Lord, to be the God who comes and sets things right. We, we find actually these words about God of vengeance. They, they offend our modern day ears. But I want to remind, if you struggle with the idea of judgment at all, and a lot of us do, and that's understandable in our world, in our day. But I want to remind you that if you hope for a world of peace, a world that's right, A world where the poor and the marginalized aren't oppressed. Where there aren't a scarcity of resources and those with much are just hogging it for more. If that's the kind of world, and we all long for that world, there has to be judgment. It's the judgment of God. And thanks be to God, it's not our judgment because none of us could judge well. We would judge biased. But thanks God, the judge, rise up. It says, uh, he calls him, rise up, O judge of the earth. It's God's judgment that actually ensures that, those, that the world will be put back into right shape again. And so that's a good thing. We saw a few weeks ago that's celebrated in the Psalms, as we saw in Psalm 96. 
So the psalmist cries out to God first, restrains taking revenge for himself. And, and I should say this cry to the God of vengeance is very different. It's very, very different than an impulse for simply bloodthirsty revenge. It's asking God to do what he's promised and to set the world back to the way he intends for it to be. God in his judgment, actually, we can fast forward and see that when God actually does bring judgment, where does it fall? This is always important to remember as Christians when we talk about a topic that's hard to address in our cultural context. The judgment of God falls upon God himself at the cross of Jesus Christ. In order that the wicked, that the the psalmist is upset about in this text, that we're upset about sometimes in our lives, in order that those very wicked people, not very wicked, you know what I meant, the wicked people, um, that they could encounter the God of mercy and compassion and steadfast love. It's amazing. God is so gracious that he does bring judgment into the world, but he brought it upon himself in order that we could be forgiven and become part of the righteous. Again, not the perfect, but those yielded to the Lord on his side. All right, so the psalmist cries out to act. The second thing that he does is he exposes the folly of the wicked. And and this is beautiful in Psalm 94, verse 7. So we've kind of learned that the wicked are boastful and they're crushing and killing people who don't deserve to be killed. And then it says in verse 7, and they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. And the psalmist then responds with, understand, O dullest of the peoples, Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? You sit there and and you act unaccountable. You do your own thing. You're on your high horse. You're saying we're just going to do what we want and get what we want. And God, who is God anyway? He's not going to see. That's the height of folly. Because yes, God does see. We read it in Hebrews. Verse 13 of chapter 4, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The psalmist is saying this directly to the people who are on the side of the wicked in this case, but most of the people reading this psalm and reciting this psalm throughout its history are people like you and me, or those of us who have followed Jesus and who are wrestling with situations like this, struggling with them. Actually, if you back up in the Psalms of Psalm 73, it's a classic example of the psalmist looking at the wicked and seeing that they prosper. And he, he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then in verse 13, he says, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Because when I see the wicked on top, when I see people who reject God actually prospering, when I see people who are faithful to him being killed, I just want to throw in the towel. That's the psalmist says in in Psalm 70. I just want to give up. And the psalmist writing in Psalm 94 knows that. And so he basically exposes the lie that all of us then get tempted by when we're in situations where we're wrestling and struggling to see how God is present in our situation. And he exposes them by going to the end. It's actually true in Psalm 73 as well. The psalmist says, you know, I didn't understand this until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. That God sets them in slippery places. And in the same way the psalmist here says, look, 
They seem to be prospering, but I know the truth of God. I know how he's at work in the world. And I know that he will call people to account. I know that even though it seems like right now they're getting away with murder, literally, that they won't get away with it in the end. And so he exposes the lie because these situations tempt us to believe the lie, to give up our covenant faithfulness to Yahweh and to jump in and join the games of the world on the world's terms. And the psalmist says, no, that's a foolish way to go because God does in fact see. And at the end of things, God will make things right. There's a future orientation even to the psalmist's prayer. So he exposes the folly of the wicked. And so in these situations that you're in, if you get tempted because you're just under pressure, it's so important, like Psalm 94, to reject the temptation to, to, to defect, if you will. So much of the New Testament urges us to endurance. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble." He says it's coming. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard, but take heart. Be encouraged. Paul says, don't lose heart because I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Stay encouraged. Don't jump. Don't defect because of these situations. And that's essentially the second thing the psalmist does is exposes the lie to keep us from defecting, to keep us staying faithful. Third and finally, what the psalmist does is he reaffirms the blessed position of those on the side of Yahweh, of God. Verse 12, blessed is the man, happy is the man. This is a great word, same as in Psalm 1, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. You may feel abandoned, you may feel forsaken, But I'm telling you, the psalmist says, he won't forsake you. He won't abandon you. For justice will return to the righteous. This perpetual injustice that's caused this psalm to be written, it will be taken away at some point. And all the upright in heart will follow it. And then the psalmist at verse 16 goes and just starts to celebrate in many ways the fact that God is on our side with wonderful phrases. If the Lord hadn't been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, I'm about to trip up. I can't take anymore. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, when I don't understand what I'm going through, when I can't understand why this injustice continues in my life or in the world, and it causes me sleepless nights, your consolations, the perspective that you bring, the end that you have promised, cheers my soul. This is a picture of God on the side of those who walk with him. Being faithful, giving life, giving provision, giving support. And then he says, the Lord has become my stronghold, my God, the rock of my refuge. Essentially, the the truth that the psalmist is communicating to us is, look, God is worth everything in your life. You can have everything else, but if you don't have him, you're poor. And you can have nothing else, but if you have him, you're rich. You're blessed. You have all that you need. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, Satan says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything. Remember what Jesus says? You know, worship the Lord and serve him only. 
And then Jesus takes that same truth and teaches his disciples in Mark 8. And he says, if, what, what good is it a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? God is worth it. God is everything that we need. God is enough. So the psalmist encourages us to hang on to these things, even in the midst of circumstances that challenge what we proclaim. One final story from a biblical text from the book of Daniel. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being threatened by Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar set up an idol and said, you've got to bow down and worship this God. And if you don't, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace so that you burn up. And then three men come to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, look, King Nebuchadnezzar, you can tell us to do what you want, but we're not going to turn our backs on our God. And then they say something profound. They say, and even, and, and they say, our God will deliver us. And then they say, and even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Even if the circumstances appear to be the end for us, it appears that you have the upper hand because we burn up in the furnace. We're not going to bow down. He will still deliver us. And you know the story when they go into the furnace, there's a fourth person alongside of them representing the faithfulness and provision and care and rescue and protection of God for his people. And I'm not saying that you're going to be rescued when you go into the fiery furnace. But I am saying learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that God can rescue you should he so choose. And that God will rescue you and me when we're six feet under and decaying. At some point we're all going to face the furnace that we can't overcome on our own. And our hope is in God who rescues his people. And who's given us the promise of that rescue through his son Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus that's at the heart of our Christian faith. So here's the final thing. And when you're in these, and some of you might be in these situations right now, I just want to encourage you with Psalm 94 cry out to God, exercise the muscles of your faith by lamenting and, and, and praying to Him. See the lie so that when you're tempted to give up, to give in, to throw in the towel, to join the other side, that you can see through it to the end that it doesn't pay. And remember that God is on your side. And that that counts for everything. Amen.